What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. My guest today is retired fire chief Colin DeWitt, who spent 40 years in the fire service. We talk about some of the lessons he learned while he was coming up, some of the lessons he learned as a fire chief, all that and much, much more. Please enjoy. Chief Colin DeWitt, thank you so much for coming and hanging out and, and sharing uh, some time with us. And um, I, you know, I wanted to I want to talk about the you know your life as a fire chief and, and you know the forty years that you spent in the fire service. Um, but the but before we do that, I I want to talk a little bit about how you got to that point. So you, I know you started your career in the fire service in nineteen seventy three, and I was still toddling around. So. Um, I want to hear a little bit about how you ended up in the fire service and, and you know, what brought you there and, and what that was like for you coming into the fire service of that back in the seventies. Well, Reen, thank you for letting me, me be here. This is a, a lot of fun to talk about things and I get to edit and only talk about successes, not the failures, but <laughs> um, there are enough of those too. In, uh, in my, the Wayback machine, I was, I was probably uh, just looking for something to support my small family. I had one child and, and a wife, and I was trying to go to school, pay for school, uh, pay for bread on the table and, and air conditioning, or which we didn't have, so um, that was one less expense. Um, and my dad, who was a captain on the job at the time, he was station 21B, uh, he said, son, I think that the fire department is hiring. And I said, well, dad, I, I, I can't do a full-time job. He says, yeah, but they'll help you. They'll they tuition reimbursement and so forth. So I, so that's, that's starting to sound more attractive. And uh, I went down and took the test. It was a standard uh, civil servant test. You can check it out in the library and study it up and, and uh, took it. And as I went through that process, uh, the city was in a, 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 an interesting hiring phase. They were taking geographical areas and trying to g- gain more diversity. And, and I just happened to be living in, a, in that geographical area. Uh, there were about five of us who were all sons of captains on the job. That ended up a year later still sitting on the list and they were still hiring and one of them read pickering and uh harold pickering and and uh, his brother were were on my list and and they and it uh red went to the city manager said listen you're passing over these guys they're our kids they have more as much drive and every reason to be on this job but you're passing them up and i'm going to go ahead and, and take the city to court and uh, the manager sent a and a memo and and uh, we got calls the next day to show up for the training academy and there was a pre-hire physical that you had to go through and I went through that process and got hired uh, and uh, we all went to station nine there were five of us sons of captains kids and and uh, we felt pretty doggone lucky to have gotten the job got on the job and and uh, I kept going to school and and uh, raised kids didn't have any real intention of staying here hmm. what were you studying um, I, I was in uh, political science. It was uh, my first major, and then I jumped from that to engineering, and I ended up graduating in engineering and then to a master's degree in public administration. So um, ASU got 15 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> they dedicated a building. You'll see it, the Colin right. DeWitt building. It's got a swinging door and a half moon on it, but it's, <laughs> it nonetheless is, uh, was was something that we got did get through after all yeah no that's great and it and it, it looks like you took a turn that really applied in your career eventually i don't this is kind of a chicken and egg i'm not sure which one happened that way but um, it was easiest for me to pick a, a field of study that applied to what i was doing and i fell in love with this place yeah i felt in love fell in love with what i was doing the people i was doing it with and what I thought was leadership at the time to help me to grow personally. So um, I, when school was no longer a question, I, I, and I could have gone anywhere, this is where I wanted to be. Yeah. So what changed for you? Because you, you, know, you said you came on the job not really thinking this was a career for you. Um, you know, it was going to hold down the bills until you got to a point where your education was going to switch tracks for you. So what, what changed for you that kept you here? What we did. And every day was different. Yeah. And, and I saw friends and, and uh, colleagues that, that worked in areas that they showed up and did the same thing every day. Mm. And they complained about it's the same thing every day. Mm. And, 
I got an in basket here and an out basket here. I got to move the stuff from here to here. And when I'm done with that, then I can go home. And I enjoyed the, the variety of stuff that we did even back then. And it was fairly narrow in comparison to what's going on today. But, well, uh, well you came on during a period of time when, when a lot of things were evolving in the fire service at a pretty rapid rate. And I still f- I feel like things are changing pretty rapidly, have changed throughout my entire career. Things are constantly evolving and changing. But I feel like some of the, I don't know, I feel like there are real hallmark, hallmark changes that took place in the 70s and 80s in particular. So what are some of the things that stand out to you as changes that, that you watched? Well, it was happen? an acronym we used quite a bit, EMS, is what, what really happened. Yeah. Uh, I remember very well when Ladder 9 was dispatched on an auto accident, a 962, and we all said, what? <laughs> an auto accident? What are they going to do? They take a ladder to a, uh, an auto accident? And when that transition took place and, and medics and rescue medics, we had names for everybody and and it fits something that you were were doing at that moment and to change tomorrow but um and, and i was talking earlier about um there was a, a phase between just being one of the guys on the truck to becoming a medic there was an intermediary that was a rescue medic and and you say that to anybody today and they scratch your head what's what is that we were just kind of almost training somewhat by somebody to become a medic and i thought that would be fun and so i jumped on that boat and and uh became a, a medic in the early days and rode in the back of a, a van it was a van that the resource management was using to deliver supplies to stations it had it had that expanded steel between the cab the front two seats and the back which was storage and there was a hearse tool bouncing around in the back I, the rescue medic, and the two medics that sat up in front, I was in the back holding on like a monkey in a cage <laughs> to keep from getting thrown around. And we went, and bless their hearts, I don't remember there being a training class for tr- for driving Code 3 <laughs> in a van. But uh, we did some crazy things, and Starsky and Hutch had nothing on us. Yeah, nothing. yeah. Well, I think Code 3 driving policies and rules have have come a long way from those days. Usually from bad experiences yeah, that we had. Born have. out of the stuff that you guys did, I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, all the policies we have today were, have your name on them. Um, so what are, some of the, what are some other things that you saw evolve? Were you, were you, were you guys riding tailboard at that point? Yes, we were. So tell me about that. What was that like? Um, uh, there was no other way. Nobody ever said you, you were supposed to sit down and go to a fire. And uh, hanging onto the back of those old, old trucks was was uh, a thrill that made it even more thrilling but um as i recollect down at station 23 when you go go from from uh base baseline to or uh, i i don't remember the streets now but (laughs) there was one uh railroad spur that if you if the driver hit Mm. it fast enough we could have both of our feet and we could almost be parallel with the road as we go down, and we get dressed out in route, so that meant one guy put his coat on, yeah. grabbed a hold of the rail, and put his arm around you while you put your coat on. You had to take your belt off, your safety belt, which Oof. was all all that was going to do was was drag you behind the truck, <laughs> and, and we sailed down the road. Uh, it was like that. We had one guy stationed. Now these stories, please stop me when I when it gets really old. But we had one one uh, firefighter, brand new firefighter, in the shower. Came around, got out on engine nine. I was on ladder nine. I peeked out around, and he he had forgot to put any pants on. He had his day boots on, so his his fanny was hanging out below his coat. And it was it was that kind. And it was all we could do to keep from falling off the truck. We were laughing so hard. The wind did catch the back of that thing. That's oh my a, gosh, that's ridiculous. A, a story that you tell your grandkids and then nobody believe it. Yep, yep. Well, I've watched I've watched folks come out and get turned out in their uh, in their bunker gear with no underpants on well it's yeah, ridiculous it, it, but it I, is we, what it is we get excited it's a horrible visual actually we <laughs> need to not go there it's disgusting um but at least in at least in bunker pants it's contained there you go there you go the bad the bad shot is not there yeah yeah well so so i know that you throughout the course of your career you you were participating in some big changes and i think going from tailboard into the cab of a truck must have been a really hard change in the fire service. 
um, for a lot of folks. What, do you remember what that change was like, how it felt? Seat belts was a big deal, and, and we didn't do a good job of it. The transition from, from tailboard to inside, all of a sudden we were facing forward or backwards. I, mean, I guess we had both, but um, getting dressed out uh, was still promoted challenges, to standing up to get dressed out. When, the, when you got within a, a few uh, blocks or less, You'd stand up to look. We had convertibles that cut the tops off. We paid a lot of money to have those tops cut off, <laughs> interestingly. And we'd stand up and we could look. And so the captain would stand up. Start sizing up the fire. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and looking for the hydrant. And, uh, it was just a difficult transition. And, and seat belts had to be something that required a lot of attention in the industry. Uh, we watched it very, very closely as... As, as, as I went up through the, in fact, even as a fire chief and later in my career, I, uh, getting the guys to wear seat belts was tough. But uh, whereas when we're dangling off the back of a fire truck, no, not so big a deal. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting how our, how our understanding of these safety tools, right? These implements that we use for our own safety just evolve over time, right? We don't, you know, you're hanging off the back of a fire truck, the, a seatbelt clearly is not. Uh, an issue once you start closing well well here's a question i have because i don't actually know the answer to this what drove the change to close caps or not even close caps but into getting people off the tailboard into the cap do we have a were there firefighters getting hurt or what drove that change do you recall there was an incident or two uh, where we lost fire trucks rolled over fire trucks mm. and the obvious need to get out of a uh, a traditional model to something that was safe, in, encompassing, completely encaging us. Um, we had we had firefighters who were thrown out. Um, it, it was it was uh, that issue. Um, uh, certainly debris. Certainly uh, getting having a cool place that you could you could be and and not be in the elements before you actually got thrown into a fire or something. Something that could keep you cool. So air conditioning became the rule and air conditioning in an open cab is not make and certainly on the tailboard it was it was never ever good until we evolved to closed cabs and uh, uh, creature comforts inside to yeah. include am fm cassette <laughs> cb monitoring devices. right right yeah it, it's yeah it, it's oftentimes these these big changes like that often happen when when you know, they're written in blood, right? The policies are written in blood. These changes are written in, in, in blood as well. And I think sometimes we, organizationally, we can push back on these changes because they're so, they're difficult. They're expensive. They do, they require cultural shifts in our beha- in behavior. And humans don't like to do behavior changes necessarily unless they have to. And so that's a, it's interesting because we're seeing, you know, in the modern fire service today, you know, it's always different things coming along that are related to our own safety. And now there's a, you know, we're seeing the, the clean cab concepts, right? We're worried about carcinogens and how those are affecting us. And so it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, where we're going to be in the next 20 years, what that's going to look like. And, you know, we've come a long way and it's always driven on this idea that we need to be safer. And the counter argument is often what, how are we compromising our response in the community if we're taking steps to be safer if i have to stop to get inside of a cab and slow down my response you know riding on tailboard had to be faster um you know if i have to put on a seatbelt and have to wear a seatbelt the entire way to a call my ability to get turned out inside the cab you know is going to be compromised and so we hesitate to engage in safer practices because we want to be um, we justify it rather, right? so we hesitate. We justify our desire based on on what we perceive the community's expectations are, and you know I think largely they expect us to show up and provide you know rescue services, but we got to be careful that we're not outpacing our own safety because if we don't show up, um, if we're not if we get in an accident and everyone gets hurt and killed, what good are we, right? What good can we provide to the community if we're not able to show up and be present? Because we didn't get there, right? Therefore, you know, go back to you know code three driving. If we violate the code three driving rules and we get into collisions on the way to these calls, now we can't show up. Third, fourth, three trucks have to put out the fire because we got in an accident. What good are we to the community at that point? 
So it's, it's an interesting balance as we as we push back against some of these changes that happen. I think that, uh, and as you well know, uh, I my uh, long-standing mentor was Alan Brunacini, hmm. and uh, we had, as an industry, had moved more in line with traditional staffing, traditional practices. And the individual, the firefighter, was kind of an, an also ran as a as a component of that. Um, Bruno brought it back to the the other side that says we're going to make sure that you get there and then get home afterwards. And so he was pushing uh, most of the safer practices, and I got to say he also empowered his staff to look for ways to make us safer on a day-to-day basis. SCBAs were not a, were not an, a given. In fact, uh, if, if I remember correctly, we had to write a memo, we carried the SCBAs on top in a box of an open uh, hose bed, not easily accessible, not used, except in those situations where you're going to be in a confined space or, or above and below ground. And we made some rules, but they were fairly loosely woven to Absolutely. Any time that you walk into a situation that's going to potentially can, does have, or uh, you suspect you'll need it, and sometime in the future, you're going to have it on and, and and on air as soon as you get into a contaminated atmosphere. So it's a, a whole range of changes took place, and if the if the leadership doesn't support that, obviously it's not going to happen. He was very very strong in summary. Uh, with regards to getting home after the fact and started looking out for us and, and infectious control and all of the things that that uh, are, are just common bywords today were brand new uh, terminology to us at the time. Didn't know them, couldn't translate them. They could have been a foreign language. Yeah. And uh, employee safety and firefighter safety and longevity. Seven years after retirement, a firefighter dies of normal conditions. Seven years. So after 20 years of service in, in your profession, you can anticipate at seventh year, you're probably going to be gone. You, you'll be a memory. Yeah. And to what we have today and longevity was a, was a, a byproduct uh, of this whole push to be safer, to, pre- to make an environment that contributes to longevity and uh, helpful longevity, not just wheelchair stuff. Yeah. Did you see a lot of resistance? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of guys who their feet did the talking for them. Mm. They left. Um, EMS was a killer. A lot of guys said, I, I didn't come on the fire department to be a, a nurse. And they'd leave. Yeah. Um, the change has been in, is, is part of our culture. If you don't buy into change, then you probably shouldn't be here. You should be doing something that is traditional. And, and I'm not sure where that industry exists today. Yeah, I, I think even most modern industries are constantly pivoting and adjusting and making changes. I think that's just the world we live in is very fast moving and is, is growing and evolving yeah. pretty quickly. Uh, if you can't handle change, then yeah, I don't know what you're going to do. And handling is, is, is the recipient side of it. I think being a, 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 a creator of change. In other words, someone who's looking for improvement, looking for a better way to do it, yeah. and can come up with ways. Going from from idea to fruition is a long path, and it, it, it involves a lot of participants and a lot of activity. And if you're not willing to put in the legwork that it takes to get to fruition to the end here, and what that, what that is, because there's always a feedback loop, planning, organizing, leading, and evaluation. And if, if you haven't got a notion about... How am I going to, at fruition, when this idea is implemented, I have to evaluate it because there's another click of the dial that makes another change, planning, organizing, leading, and evaluation. Right. So it's, it's an interesting process. If you don't buy into the whole game, um, get a cabin in the woods. <laughs> I can't tell you what to do. Right. It's going to be tough. Right. Yeah. That's It would be frustrating. Um, as you came up throughout your career, what what, when you look back, what was one of the most interesting or, or enjoyable positions that you held? Oh, you're going to laugh. It's, it's a multiple question, but the, uh, I enjoyed being an engineer on a fire truck. 
I loved that fire truck. I loved the responsibility of getting everybody where they had to go in a, in a fashion that got them there where they could perform. Um, I, I love keeping things clean and organized, and that was my job. Get them water, make sure they've got everything they need all the time. From the moment they, they come to the station at 7.30 in the morning until they go home the next day, it's your responsibility. Um, we didn't have all the blessings of MDTs and, or I don't know what they're even called, just computers. Now they're PCs. MCT, uh, mobile computer terminal. <laughs> see, I'm so far gone now. But the uh, the idea of having uh, even a map page given to you, what page to go to. We, we had three-ring binders that were four inches thick in most of these response areas. And you had to find the right page. And we had... In the poop deck of the fire station, there was a map that you go to, and you would find where what whether you're going left or right. And that's usually all I had to know going out the door was, am I going left or right? And then the rest of it was a, a, a matter of searching through the pages of the the map books. Um, it's it, it has evolved now to where a lot of that responsibility is is minimized. But I got to tell you that that was the most fun for me. One of the most one of the highlights was uh, November twenty second, nineteen eighty five. That was the first day we rolled an ambulance out of a fire station in, in Phoenix, and uh, I, I was the program manager for emergency transportation. Okay, and had been for about a year in an organization getting it through a, a uh, uh, certificate of of, uh, of need of need C O N. Thank you. I can remember CON. I couldn't remember what the end was all about. <laughs> Certificate of need because they certainly needed us. That seemed redundant. Indeed. But um, when we we did that for the first time, it was uh, it was one of those wow, wow. And uh, from that day forward, uh, with a lot of success, some real real moments of of deep contemplation. Have we done the right thing? Staffing was an issue. Really, I say what what caused that 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 uh, reticence um the, the idea chief brunacini said he will hire nothing but firefighters mm. and so putting firefighters on ambulances was the career path uh, in fact once you once you were hired you're going to spend the first one year uh, on an ambulance and because of uh, some of the the challenges that came along with the economy hiring stopped so the, the firefighters that were on the ambulances at that time stayed on them for more than one year and two years. And all that time, they had been their expectation was they'd be riding on a fire truck. Um, and, and they got very upset. Yeah. Uh, Chief Bernicini had a very uh, open-door kind of a policy, and we had uh, 10 of these ambulance drivers that had been doing that for a long time. Myself, uh, the union president, uh, and Chief Bernicini, the three of us on, on the other side. I was sitting. On the, I don't know which side I was supposed to sit on, but I was sitting on the <laughs> other side with them. And they were. There was no humility in that discussion at all. In fact, it, it bounded on disrespectful in mm -hmm. their unhappiness with being stuck on an ambulance, as if it, as if it was a uh, an assignment to, to to take out the the, the uh, toilets and empty them every day. It was it was a difficult one for them, and they were upset. Uh, and uh, the answer after the room was cleared was, maybe we've done the wrong thing. Maybe we shouldn't have. But in that retrospection, uh, Bruno was again came back to, no, this is what we should be doing. We should be doing it this way. Let's find a way to mitigate it. And so inventive ways of rotating, pushing everybody through ambulances so the, the masses were bigger. There were a lot of older senior folks who had never ridden on an ambulance. Well, they were going to be going to be doing it. And so they spread the pain, spread the gain, and uh, it worked out. But that was that was a moment of, in, moment of introspection that, that uh, we started to doubt that we'd really done the right thing, staffing ambulances. But that... Uh, Truthfully, I've from a distance watched, and uh, every time I see a, a red ambulance go down the road, it's uh, it's just a moment for me to pause and think that's that's pretty dang cool. Yeah, you were right there at the at the the bleeding edge of that change. Oh, it was bleeding. There's yeah. no doubt about that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think I think sometimes we forget that you know uh, 
visionary issues that are that are, that change the landscape forever are not easy to implement. There's a lot of things that have to that a lot of hurdles to get past to make that happen, and it's uncomfortable. So you have to be, you know, you have to you have to work through those issues and think about them, and you're and you have to be patient um, because you might have a wonderful idea, and it might be the greatest, you know, the next greatest thing, um, but it's going to take some hooking and jabbing and some some work to get it where it's, you know. Uh, where you look back fondly at this challenge and change and go, wow, that was, that was part of something, you know, very amazing. And here we are so many years later, you know, able to do that, but it took a lot of work to get there. It's interesting. I had, I had uh, chief Compton on a few, a little bit ago, and we chatted about kind of like labor management stuff and some of the issues that, you know, uh, you know, you hear people say things like, oh, you know, the good old days. And you're like, Hey man, the good old days weren't that great. It was a lot of fighting, a lot of work that went into, um, those good old days. And so uh, the revisionist history, sometimes, um, we forget how we got here. And, um, it's important, I think, to understand the, the, the challenges that we faced as we, you know, realize where we are today, because it helps inform how we move forward and our ability to deal with difficult stuff, you know, moving forward. Um, so, so speaking of which you were, how long were we with Phoenix? 26, 26 years, 26 years. Um, and you, uh, you ended up as a deputy chief, and um, what were some of your assignments as a deputy chief? Uh, I was in emergency medical services. I was over emergency medical services for uh, quite a while. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I did. It, for some reason, that office uh, and that that uh, operational act- activity was something that I enjoyed doing. Somebody said, well, if you enjoy it, why don't you just keep doing it? And <laughs> Uh, I didn't get chased out of there. I was in operations for a while, but uh, most of my time was spent in uh, emergency ser- emergency medical services EMS. Yeah. Yeah, and at that point we were we were well on our way with EMS and the fire service. Right? Oh, it was going everywhere. They wanted uh, PAs. Uh, we tried that. Uh, put a girl through a young lady firefighter through. Uh, PA school and and she came back and got onto a truck and she, we called her Lack One because she went around suturing all over the valley <laughs> and uh, that got that got into trouble because uh, the emergency room physicians were were uh, getting cut out of the pie in the process and it was it was difficult for for us to inject ourselves into that that stream mm. uh, that and we'll call it what it was a revenue stream right um, because we weren't charging the folks anything for what she was doing in the process, but it was taking it away from fire trucks. And so when you got an 18 or um, uh, a uh, seven or somebody like that's run the wheels off the fire trucks, it, it just seems reasonable that you try to let's parse out something that may not be at high acuity and we can do better. Right. Uh, and so she was doing that diagnostic stuff and, and uh, the fire trucks are all in service for, stuff that would hide higher acuity it seemed seemed like a reasonable approach yeah had some political stuff and had some operational stuff that didn't uh, didn't fly well but that's what we were doing yeah. you're constantly doing this yeah tweaking the other end of it yeah and making sure that you you're where you need to be doing what you need to be doing yeah there's a i think that's a really interesting balance trying to figure out what is what is the mandate from the community Right. What's the expected level of service provision that we can provide? Are we uniquely positioned to do this or are we supplanting a private industry that we have to ask ourselves that question all the time? Because I think that, you know, yeah, we're in a great position to do this, but should we be the ones who are doing it? Um, whether it be providing, you know, whatever level of, of emergency medicine or what have you, um, you know, we're breaching uh, new frontiers now uh, with telemedicine. And, you know, as the 911 system is uniquely positioned to take a caller and route them to a telemedicine provider. Um, so who provides that service? Well, there are organizations out there that do that. Our job is just to help get people the services that they need in the community, right? Not necessarily the end-all be-all to provide them. We're not always going to be the one putting the Band-Aid on, the AWI, right? But maybe we facilitate that for them, get them pointed to the right place because the community ultimately is who we're serving. So how we provide that service is we have to constantly evaluate what we're doing and how we're doing it. And, uh, you know, I think I use the right word, which is tweaking, making those adjustments, which I think is great. So you, um, 
So you left Phoenix eventually, right? I think if I remember, I read about this actually. I thought it was kind of funny because you left Phoenix on a Friday and you started your new job on a Monday <laughs> as the fire chief of, of the city of Gilbert. That wasn't the retirement that I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it was very I mean, short. We talk about expectations. Did you have a celebration? <laughs> it was, uh, I, yeah, I think we, we met with family on the Friday afternoon. And, <laughs> and then uh, it was business as usual on Monday. Yeah. Or business. Well, no, I would say not as usual, right? Because no. you were starting a whole, new, a whole new wave of your career. So what, what was it like jumping into, you know, putting on a couple more bugles and becoming the fire chief? Um, it, it's interesting, and, and I, I've said this before. What I did here and what you do here and what most of the folks in administrative-type positions, leadership positions doing is leading. And the leading part isn't always the most difficult. It's, it's adapting to the culture and expectations that you have from a completely new environment or pa uh, panorama and uh, I, I went from a huge city huge in many ways both in area as well as population with a lot of interests and uh, we, we talk about diversity uh, uh, inclusion and equity hmm. as being big important it, it, not quite so much in the burbs the suburb cities not having those uh, as huge a concern as how uh, can, should we let that Burger King go in on the corner of walk and don't walk? Those are big questions for developing cities. Not here. Not here. It's how do we get everybody in the boat and raise all the boats at the same time? Mm. So uh, making those changes and then eventually going from a smaller organization to triple four times, five times its size. Um, I, I think I built nine stations. There were two when I started and hired a bunch of folks. You get a chance to create a culture and then make, making sure that somehow that culture and expectation of the worker fits the expectation of the elected officials and translating policy into operational procedure and, and, and so forth. So that's, that was the, the new think cap that I got. And uh, it was... I had had great examples, and you mentioned uh, Denny Compton. Chief Compton was a, a great guy to, to just sit and watch and listen to. Um, uh, Alan Brunacini was, a, was a, uh, a wonderful visionary. He sat in a, in a senior staff, and he says, what if ladders could fly? And two of his, his staff started measuring for wings. Uh, it, it wasn't a question of should, should they fly or not. He was trying to. He was asking the question, and this is where it was difficult. The translation was difficult, but he, he, he was wanting to know why are we sending ladder trucks on EMS calls? So, flying ladder <laughs> trucks, and then we got ladder tenders out of that whole notion, and staffing up a second app piece of apparatus instead of ha taking out a million dollar truck to for a, a heart attack. You take a smaller truck, same guys, same equipment, just something smaller. That is is. The, the examples that I had for 26 years and taking that in my little pouch and going over to a, a, a city here close by and, and doing uh, what I had seen be done mm. and then putting maybe a Colin DeWitt spin on it, which was, uh, wasn't huge. I, there wasn't a whole lot. I, Denny, Denny and I used to, to, to visit about stuff whenever I'd have a problem and then Harry Beck came over after him. So it was just Harry and I came on the job together. So he and I would meet for lunch at the Blue Adobe there in Mesa. I'd spend money in, in Mesa, and I told him how much it hurt me. <laughs> but we would talk about the problems facing our communities and, and what a pleasure it was because we both came from the same place. Mm -hmm. And all we were doing was Harry was putting a Harry spin on it, and I was putting a Colin spin on it, things right. that I, I could do. And it was something, and then we we mixed that a little bit, and and said, uh, "That's a great idea, Harry. Let's do that." And so we were able to, uh, both of us, as we took those jobs, uh, able to uh, incorporate some of the very great successes and and put them in a different place, uh, dress them up a little bit, a bow or something simple, <laughs> but usually not too too structural, but more. Um, uh, street value as you as you look at it and say that that's a neat idea mm -hmm. it's a little different than phoenix well yeah they didn't they started they had to go through all of these steps to get there we're jumping right to there right we're at that back end where the evaluation has taken place and now we get to make that tweak is our first one 
Right. So we get a head start. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. You get to step off of uh, the platform that's already been built. So you have this elevated perspective and an elevated place to start from, which is wonderful. Um, and then I think the adaptation is figuring out how to make it to the right scale for the organization you're in. And, you know, I'm curious, you, you jumped into Gilbert during a, um, a time that was ushered in by a, a huge boom in the Valley and that city is, you know, grown like crazy, um, restricted by some boundaries, but blossoming you know, within and, you know, clearly building nine stations. You were there for 13 years, 14, years. 14 years. So that's a lot of activity in a pretty short period of time. Um, Gosh, the only question that comes to my mind is how do you manage that, right? How do you um, get a workforce, expand a workforce so quickly in such a short period of time and make sure that everybody is uh, competent and, and has the relevant skill set and is is maintaining the vision for the mission and um, you know, stand in lockstep as you move forward? I was asking a lot of questions right there, but uh, you, you kind of answered the question in the question and and. You said mission last, but it was really the first. Hmm. You you structure the 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 providers, the the personnel, all of the resources, but the human personnel piece of it over the mission. What is it we want to achieve? So we want to have people who are going to be able to do this and do it with the with heart and not with just a paycheck in mind. And so you start structuring your selection process. You start talking about. Um, what about fire stations, and, and how should we build those? Uh, we could look at Phoenix and see a lot of old stations that, that you, if you wanted a ladder truck there, you couldn't put it there because it's, it's, it's 20 feet too short. We build every fire station so they could house the biggest ladder truck you can make the first time. Hmm. And, and uh, so that's where we had a chance then to— Ladder trucks with wings? Exactly. <laughs> we can move a ladder truck in Gilbert anywhere— as the as the profile changes to high rise mid mid rise right where it was just a one engine station it's now a, a strike team it's got a it's got a ladder and a, and a and an engine and a rescue all sitting right there and a chief you know we'll, we'll do the whole thing so we we had the advantage of looking here and in building that in Gilbert we also had the advantage of knowing of response and how the expectation that a lot of our folks moving in from big cities to to a suburban life, but they want to have exactly what they had in the big city. Mm -hmm. So where you could throw a rock from one station to another, we had larger space. But our response times had to be something that they would they would say that's as good as we had in San Antonio. Mm. So or Plano. Let's go ahead and use Plano as an example. Everybody does. We drew our circles. We drew our things. We mapped out and tracked out penalized railroad tracks and and uh, four-way stops and and all of that stuff and said here's a four four minute response four minutes is, is acceptable to anybody here and so that's that's going to be the way we build stations the council bought into it because it gave them response times that they could measure and say there we have a station within four minutes and then we talked about uh, automatic response which was a, a step-by-step process in phoenix we get the end of we already seen the the, the results 16 cities i think with at, at one time and I'm, i don't know how many trend yeah we have 30 in the 30 jurisdictions now that is crazy but what are the advantages operationally to having that not mm -hmm. just the consolidation of cost and sat and and technology but what are the operationally? What are the exa the uh, benefits? And so, that was my playbook in going to them and saying, we need stations here, 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 and here, and here. And we're talking with Chandler, we're talking with Mesa, and they're going to build their stations in relation to where we build our stations, so that borders don't matter. It's always the closest fire truck, and that was revolutionary to that elected elected body, and they would buy into it. So we took great ideas and implemented implemented them, and it was um, it was like buying the same boot that you buy every year. I buy these boots every year, and 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 I know what to expect. I know how they fit. Yeah. It does. So I feel very comfortable that what I'm telling them, I don't have to go through a process to evaluate that idea. Mm. What I do next is going to be 
somewhat uh, different. But as we talk about specialized services, operate uh, uh, special operations and application of, of uh, EMS and so forth, and for our community, what do we need to have? We don't have a homeless community, but we do have uh, 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 other issues that need to be addressed. And how are we going to do that with this workforce? What do we need to do to make it happen? So it's customizing, but it's customizing on a model that is, is wonderful. And the leadership, it almost takes care of itself. If, if you can kick an idea out the door and you've surrounded yourself with smart people, um, they're going to make that something that's going to work well. Uh, leaders, leaders, as far as I'm concerned, are, are just the guy at the front. But if there's nobody behind you, you're not really a leader. Yeah, right. What are you leading? Exactly. Yeah. I, I, what I hear you saying that I really love is the idea that you're taking best practice that's been, you know, it's kind of, you have evidence, you know, evidence-based practices already exists. You're not having to recreate the wheel. You're just taking it and, and making it your own and, and evolving it into your jurisdiction, right? Which I think is, is, it's not only is it smart, but it's practical. It makes sense. You're not wasting time um, trying to recreate the wheel because you, you want to put your name on something super special and unique um, that may or may not be effective. So I think it's important to, you know, to keep that in mind that you don't always have to be the first. As a matter of fact, sometimes being the first is, you know, the first guy mm-hmm. to spend all that money and, you know, waste a lot of energy. So taking good ideas and, and capitalizing on what they do well and then making efficiencies out of it, I think is huge and really important. The, um, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you have, uh, I think I read this somewhere. Six kids, 22 grandchildren, or do you have more now? I've got 25 and Woo. two great-grandchildren. Yeah. Oh, your kids are being productive. <laughs> so I, so clearly a family is important to you. And um, you know, we were talking about my family photo back here just the other day. And, you know, it's, it's a really important part of our lives. And you know, in the fire service, one of the things that I think people struggle with at times is balance. And you, know, you had a 40-year career. And you know a family that's blossoming, um, apparently. And the uh, you know how did you balance that? How did you balance all that? What'd you do? Ray, I'm not the right guy to ask that question because I did a marginal job. Um, I almost had to reintroduce myself when I walked in the door. Uh, the job that we do is fairly consuming, and 56 hours in a week is is more than a standard work week in uh, most of our homes, and and then the requirements much as you have to uh, to respond to when emergencies emer- emergencies aren't by appointment only they they happen uh, and oft times when we're asleep um, something goes wrong and it's not being monitored until it's really big and bad and that means more people are going to be involved in it and it sucks you away from from those times when when the normal person is still uh, just rolled over in bed mm-hmm. so we have we have a peculiar job in as much as it, uh, it's emergency response and it's going to take somebody visually um, watching or vigilant to the needs of the community when they happen and being able to respond then. We say four-minute response. That means every time. And So you're going to be up all night long. The next day, you're going to probably be down for the count for a few for a few hours of sleep if you can get them and uh and that all that time your partner has been taking care of the the heavy lifting around the house and i had probably the best um, mate that uh, for 50 years now so you're 29 plus another what is that 21 i i have had um the the person that filled in that space and she did a marvelous job, uh, and that's there needs to be that. And if it's covered, you sacrifice on the back end or on the front end, but the back end uh, you get to make it up. And and I try to uh, every time that there's a grandchild that has a football game or has a volleyball game, um, I'll drive three and a half hours down here to make it for it because it's that important to me to to make sure that they see that support from the family. Uh, my my children all. Um, have uh, uh, got their mother's good looks and, and intelligence, <laughs> so they really didn't need me much except for a paycheck. And now, at this point, I think that they're they are uh, uh, are 
understanding their their husbands uh, a good number number of them are in public safety and and they understand the sacrifices that are made on both sides you you would rather be at home when you're at work i would say that's probably 99 percent of the time and uh, as long as that's communicated as long as the uh, all the participants in the family the the natural biological family are aware where you would like to be then doing the job is what it what it is it just is going to be that yeah if you don't if you can't make that sacrifice and have the support necessary to fill in kid you can't not have the have the parental kind of supports but if you can't do that then you probably need to find another occupation it's yeah. just one of those that demands a lot yeah. and on the on the outside as, as as mrs smith looks at us come through the door she doesn't really care how much sleep you've had or haven't had she's just glad to have you there and uh, as long as we can keep filling those slots with with willing people and that's the way the business is going to be yeah i uh it, it is uh it's so imperative that when you're at work you're at work and you're focused and committed. Your safety and the safety of those around you depends upon it. And when you're at home, you're at home. And you, you know, and you're you are giving your family the time that they deserve. I think that uh, you know, and I know you're you know you're being. I think you're being a little bit humble, but I think that the you know you don't get to 50 years uh, without being very uh, demonstrative of your love and commitment to your spouse. Um, I mean. I've made it to 29 years, and I tell you what, it's not without a lot of hard work. That's my own. That's the experiment of one, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of hard work, and a lot of humility, trying to recognize what I'm doing that can make me, what I'm doing wrong and how to do it better and try to, you know, uh, be a better partner. I think it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, self-reflection, a lot of recommitting on a regular basis, so... Uh, this could fill up a whole program. It's I think, its own the discussion. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and and you can have good ideas and bad ideas, and where has it gone well, and where has it gone yeah, bad? Right. The, the gone bad, I can probably give you <laughs> give you a lot of examples. But Wendy's, my wife has just been a fabulous teacher, uh, a great model, and uh, she has done a wonderful job of of uh, masterminding all of our our home life, and, mm -hmm. and I just I just do what I do. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, I've I've told this on the podcast before, but I'll and I'm gonna I'm gonna spare you all the details. But I will tell you this: one day, my wife and I were young in our marriage. Uh, we got in a fight, and um, as young couples do, and I was being a jerk, and I walked away, and uh, I said I muttered something very inappropriate under my breath, and she snapped to and got in my face, and she threw her finger up at me, and she says, "What did you say to me?" <laughs> and I said it again. And I laughed and she's like, that ain't funny. That is not, she went third person on me. That is not how you speak to your wife. And I was like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I have been learning that lesson for the last 30 years. <laughs> so <laughs> that is, there is a, you know, the, her and I setting expectations for one another, um, man, it's so important. And so important that you listen to your spouse and, and you make those course corrections where needed and you, you work through it. Um, you know, it's, it is a, it is a hard work. So here's a question I have for you. What would you tell 18 year old Colin if you had him in the room today? And it could be about anything about marriage, about life, about fire service, whatever. What would you tell him? Well, I'm probably not qualified to talk to 18 year olds. I, I think I'd probably tell them where to go to look, ask for good advice, but uh, choosing choosing who you're going to be with is probably the biggest choice and uh, we we know that we get we can get through this life alone or we can have a partner and uh, i would say it's it's almost impossible to successfully get through this life without somebody that you can uh, respect and and trust and and help you with uh, the rest of the things that you're going to do because uh, alone is just not a good way to be and uh, uh, you know just 
that that should be a get a lot of focus out of an 18 year old probably in the next two or three years they're gonna you're gonna marry who you're gonna date so date people that you might want to marry and uh, look for somebody that has similar or at least has good good uh, intentions in life and yeah the work is work is how we support that mm. I, I even though i i was a firefighter um it, it, it my my heart was still my family and we we do that to each other in the fire station we create a fam a familial relationship that's deeper than what we're doing on the outside it's it's a relationship we trust each other we respect each other we put our going to dangerous situations with them because we trust and and respect and so I, I think in our domestic or our home life, all the more because this is a forever deal, and uh, yeah, I would say be very, very cautious and and uh, selective as you go through the process, and and uh, always be worthy of who you select. Yeah, that's a challenging. That's a challenging process. I give my wife a hard time. I'm like, I, you know, I don't know how you pick me. <laughs> I know you. That's a high risk endeavor, woman. You're lucky. Worked out okay, but boy. Uh, hey, so I wanted to ask you some rapid fire questions. I mean, we can, we can, it, you can take as long or you can be as short as you like. But they're just kind of fun questions I like to ask everybody. What's something that you believe that other people think is crazy? Chevy over Ford. <laughs> I, you know, it, I, I don't know. That you care it, to justify that statement? Well, yeah, I can. I can. My my dad was a Chevy guy, so um, uh, it, it, it's. I've I've used that in my mind because um, I can run into a Ford over Chevy guy, who I, I love and adore, but I can't. I could. I could. Never marry that person because they like Fords more than they do Chevys. <laughs> I don't know. I love it. Okay. What's what's one bad recommendation that you've heard people give? Oh, uh, make yourself happy. Uh, and, and I don't think that everything that we do is going to necessarily make us happy. Sometimes there's a greater good. Sometimes there's mitigating circumstances that are initially not going to make you happy at all, but in the end you'll get happy. And I, I think that man is that he might have joy is the notion that, that um, joy over happiness, um, doing stuff that you don't, you know, you'd really rather not do, um, it sometimes gives you the best benefits. So. I love that. Let me so let me flip it on you. Mm. What's one great piece of advice that you've been given? Be safe. Say more about that. Well, again, my uh, Alan Bernasini was was one to um, not. He, he would always defend safe. When you stepped out of the boundary, it was it was he had a harder time defending you in the process. But he had to had another one was be nice. And being nice was was I don't know why that can't go hand in hand with safe, because if you can't go further and continue to deliver help in in the needed situation or advice or whatever it is, because you are unsafe, then uh, it, it's a it's a failed endeavor. But um, I, I would say that that as I uh, watched the evolution of of everything procedure. Um, Grooming, you mean I? You name a por portion of what we do in a day's time, and he would say, "If you can't do this because you're doing that, don't do this because we're going to be safe every time. We're not going to get on X, X type roofs, bow strung roofs. We're not going inside. We're not going to do that. We've seen what happens 50% of the time. That's too big a risk." Our risk profile, the way it's set up, is, you know, all of those things had a, had a notion of just getting home the next day. I know that that in in, uh, in the the deaths that that happened during my career, that those were for him, 
for all of us, but for him as the fire chief, he felt a direct responsibility. And something came out of those uh, that we we reflected on and said, we won't do that anymore because this is a, this one time was a potential. So we're not going to find ourselves in that situation. Find a way around it that we can still be effective, but we're not going to do that. I think I carried that through as, as uh, it, it included... Uh, Oh, uh, firefighters typically are, are aggressive people, and they want to. They're when all the smart people are running one way, we're running the opposite direction, which makes us what? <laughs> and so, uh, as uh, seat belts were a challenge because they wanted to get their turnouts on quickly and en route to this truck, and and so uh, we had several situations where uh, our guys were dressing out in the back of the truck while it's on en route code three to a scene. And uh, I, I, we, I had the foot-to-butt conversation with each one of them that said, you, you can't do that. So, so finally we got to pass the warning and everything. If I see or any chief officer sees, witnesses, this taking place, that whole crew will go home that day for the rest of the shift. And then it happened. And, and I had a battalion chief call and say, Chief, uh, they did. I said, send them home. And never, not hasn't been, to my knowledge, in the years since, another occasion like that. But that's the serious nature that I felt we had in our discussion with safety in Phoenix. I felt that every chief officer from Bruno down felt empowered to do what was necessary so that everybody went home the next day. And... Uh, including sending him home. Yeah. And, uh, if I have to send you home to keep you alive. Exactly. That's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. All right. Last question. So we call it, this podcast is the Fireground Fitness Podcast. Um, what does it mean to you with 40 years in the fire service to be Fireground Fit? It's head to toe. And, and, uh, I say that only because we, we oftentimes forget the behavioral com, uh, component in that being fit and having uh, all of your wits about you, not concerned about an ex-wife or, or your kids are being cared for or if they're being cared for, um, the implications of a 24-hour away from this or I've got a baseball game tonight and I haven't got any relief for it. I wonder how I can pull this off. All of those things that can be jumbled in your mind, confusing you, and in, in my favorite position as an engineer, knowing which whether to go right or left, I don't want to be confusing it with all of the other stuff. I've got to be able to close the door on that, learning how to do that. And then the physical component that goes into making us where um, seven years after we, re- we retire, we're still fly, fly fishing and, and running uh, pass up South Mountain. Those, I think, are the fit components, and it, 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 all of the tools are here. Do we use them? And uh, that's probably, implementation is probably one of the challenges in getting everybody in the boat. And uh, are we carrying around 20, 30 pounds that we shouldn't? Or are we, uh, yes. Are we going to see... Um, when we're having difficulty with our wives, are we having, are we getting outside counseling? Are we doing whatever, pull the trap door that's going to, is going to be humility on your part, but do it anyway, because you can't be effective as a firefighter carrying around baggage all day long that you, is going to be a distraction for you. Uh, Everybody needs your full participation. Uh, Stop drinking by, by, two o'clock the day before you come to shift because you're still going to be hung over at nine o'clock in the morning and you've already had two calls that morning. So all of those things that are just way out here, it seems like, but they have so much to do with how we deliver service. Beautiful. I love it. Well, chief, it, thank you so much for, for, for 40 years in the fire service, first of all, we, you know, the community thanks you. Thank you for spending some time and sharing, you know, your thoughts and ideas and, and, um, you know, some of the lessons that you've learned throughout that, that tenure in the fire service really appreciate you and, and just appreciate you taking the time. Rain. It's a, I think what you're doing is a, is a valuable tool 
not that I've contributed at all to it, but it's been it's always fun for me to get these kinds of questions and to go back and relive the 40 years of absolute, uh, at the moment, not blissful, but um, it, it, I can say that my career was fun. Uh, fun as a whole, fun on a daily basis, uh, almost on an hourly basis, and, and uh, not many people get to say that about what they did for a career. Thank you. That's all we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you're enjoying this podcast, get over to whatever platform you like to listen on. Subscribe. This podcast will drop in the middle of the night when you least expect it. Additionally, get on over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast. Feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, Any feedback that you provide is valuable for me in helping us build this product to be more uh, in tune with what you want to hear. Lastly, take the lessons that you're learning here from the people that are sharing their knowledge, imbue it into your life. Remember, there are no shortcuts. So let's go on out there and get some.